Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that uh, even as we stand here today, um, we are reminded that you are the one who gives to us life and breath and everything. That even as we took an offering earlier today, we offer nothing to you that you have not freely given to us. We offer praise to you only because you've given us breath in our lungs to do so. And right now, Lord, we offer our attention to you um, with the power and the discernment and dedication that you've given us. We pray that you are honored by our thoughts, by our worship, and by our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen. So we've been working through the gospel of Luke, and as we've done so, we've seen a lot and talked much about a life of discipleship. And discipleship, to put it simply, is a life of following. It's an active life of walking with, being influenced by, learning from someone. But our text this morning that Jonathan just read for us in Luke chapter 7 challenges a ghost of discipleship that often rears its head in our own world today. And the challenge is this, is that while discipleship is a life of active following, if we're sober with ourselves, are we truly following Jesus or are we asking Jesus to follow us? And the danger of this is subtle. Few of us would be so bold as to say, I'm inviting Jesus to follow me. He's Jesus, we're not. We couldn't even find our way to church this morning. No one should follow us. Yet if we honestly think about our walk with him, where are we asking Jesus to follow our dreams, to fit into our plans, and to meet our expectations instead of the other way around? And it's only human to want what seems to be the path of great fulfillment, the path of personal satisfaction. In fact, our desire that something is not good is actually a remnant of the image of God that is still inside of us, though sin has tainted our hearts. No one looks at our world or our lives and says, aha, I have arrived. And that's because we were created for something more. We were created in the image of God. And so our hearts, blind as they might, are straining and longing for something fulfilling. But because of this, most of us unfortunately end up affirming affirming and enjoying only half-truths of the path of discipleship. There is amazing privilege in the half that we get to walk with Jesus. We see the joy of this today. Right now, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have repented and come to faith in him, Jesus, your king, is right here with you. I don't know what your week was like. I don't know the difficulties. I don't know the sorrows. I don't know the joy you had. But in the midst of all of that, Jesus, the creator of the cosmos, is not far from you. He is with you. But Jesus not only walks with us, he also walks before us. If Jesus merely walks with us, then we do get to decide what the path of greatest satisfaction and personal joy is. And every now and then we come to that beautiful theology that dog is my co-pilot. And we look in the, the passenger seat, I guess that's over here for me. You look in your passenger seat and you make sure Jesus is there, make sure the window's down, he feels happy. He's not super distressed about where you're going and you go on with your life. But if Jesus, the one who walks with us, also walks before us, then the path for our own joy The path for our own satisfaction, the path for our own salvation has already been decided for us. 
We walk not only then with Jesus, but behind Jesus. And that's the life of following him. In your trades, in your business, in sports, and in art, you know the privilege of finding a good mentor. We get that at a social level. We often know that the path to personal greatness and satisfaction is defined by these rare encounters with someone who not only has knowledge, but actually has a vested interest in advancing you as well. And today, Jesus is going to tell us in the book of Luke what it looks like to be great as we walk with him. That might seem odd right now, but that's really what we're discussing. Today, we're seeing what it looks like to be great, though it's in the kingdom of God. And our main point today is this, is that the path of personal fulfillment is the way of gospel wisdom. The path to personal fulfillment is the way of gospel wisdom. In other words, we're not only going to be answering the question of how to be great, we're actually going to be answering the question of how to be greatly satisfied. How is it that our own soul finds peace in a world that I don't know if you had the terrible privilege of logging on to social media the past few days since Roe vs. Wade was overturned. It's a divisive, dangerous, hostile, visceral place on both sides. But Jesus holds up a way to be greatly satisfied in the midst of this world. And we're going to do this in two ways. First, in verses 24 through 25, we're going to recognize the privileges of the gospel. And then secondly, in verses 28 through 35, we're going to see the purpose of the gospel. And our passage today is tied immediately to the scene which we looked at last week. And that is that John the Baptist had previously been wandering around the Judean wilderness proclaiming that God's long-awaited Messiah was finally coming, that he was here, that the long-awaited prophecies were being fulfilled, that the poor would be made rich, that crooked paths would be made straight, that lame men would walk, that dead men would rise, and that captives would be set free. And sure enough, Jesus of Nazareth comes and begins to fill these prophecies to a T. And yet while lame men are walking, while captives are being freed, while dead men are rising, John is sitting in prison and wondered, as Johnny aptly put last week, the same question you might have at various times, but are those promises for me? Does Jesus care about me? Does he notice me? Are you really the Messiah? And what we saw last week is that Jesus spoke into John's circumstances with a firm but encouraging reminder that the greatest portion of the work of Jesus is not completed here. The fullness of our redemption doesn't happen on this world, but in the kingdom to come. We have immediate relief from the consequences of sin. We have immediate union with God the Father. We have immediate indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And yet the final removal of all of the consequences of sin is that one day we will live in the kingdom of God and everything will be made new. But right now, though we are not immediately in the kingdom, we have the hope of the kingdom through the king of the kingdom. Keep the faith in Jesus. Last week, Jesus spoke all of this about his own role to John the Baptist's disciples. And now John the Baptist's disciples, we see in verse 24, are leaving the scene and Jesus is turning to his own disciples and he's now going to talk to them about the ministry of John the Baptist. Instead of casting doubt on John in light of his public questioning, Jesus is actually going to reinforce John and his message. And this is our first point today. This is where we learn to recognize the privilege of the gospel. Would you read with me verses 24 through 28? 
When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. He is the one of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you that among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So as we look at this first scene, we actually see two privileges I want to touch on in this passage. The first is going to be the character of Jesus, which in redemption is turned towards us. And then secondly, we'll look in a little bit the content of good news and why that is truly good news. But first, we're going to focus on the character of Jesus. And one of the biggest privileges to the gospel is that we are not only saved by the works of Jesus, but we are saved by the person of Jesus. In a business sense, we can often disassociate someone's work from their personality. When you go and you buy some sweet meats from Notorious P.I.G., you don't necessarily walk out having the best friendship of the cashier. We, we, we are able to delineate between those things. But there is no such delineation to be saved by Jesus Christ. None of us are saved by our works. On our own, we are sinful. We are unfaithful to God. And we know all of this because traffic circles exist, right? When we run into traffic circles, we immediately acknowledge our limitations. For some of us, and we say, all of the rules of the road are gone and I know not how to proceed. We realize our finitude. But we also realize that we ourselves are a liability. For we see the first person who stops to wave us through when they have the right of way. And we are angry and we are frustrated. And we realize that not only are we limited, but our sin lives in our heart. <laughs> And we are so prone to anger and to judgment. We realize our world is broken, that we wrestle with sin, but Jesus came into this broken world and perfectly obeyed his father. We were sinful. Jesus was perfect. We know that he came and died a sacrificial life to be our substitute for our sins so that people, though sinful, should we put our faith in Jesus Christ have been won back out of damnation into the good pleasure of God. But to be granted salvation by faith alone, not our works. Our works do nothing to save us. Faith is not a work. Faith is a gift from God. We have not merely the benefit of Christ's work. We have the benefit of Christ's relationship being applied to us. This means we get not only the product of redemption, but we get the personal redeemer himself. Other religions might be able to have some sort of God who presents to you a certificate of righteousness, a certificate of cleanliness, a certificate of salvation, but only the Christian God gives you his righteousness inside of his relationship. We cannot have righteousness which saves apart from having a relationship with the one who is righteous himself, Jesus Christ. And why is this a privilege? Well, we see this unfolding in this text before us. Look at what Jesus does for John in this passage. Mind you, John, up until this point in Luke, was at the top of his game. He was gaining crowds. He was speaking boldly. But then on account of his message, he was imprisoned. While many of his followers left him as the primary teacher and began to follow Jesus. While many simultaneously saw John in prison and began to question his validity as a prophet of God. Certainly, if he was a prophet, he wouldn't be imprisoned. 
And then on top of all of that, what we just saw last week is that John himself just publicly and perhaps humiliatingly so called into question the validity of the very man that he was proclaiming as God's anointed Messiah. He went to the one who he spent whole of his ministry saying, the one who is coming, whose sandal I am not not worthy to untie, he will baptize you not with water, but with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then he goes to that same man. He says, are you the one? Or should we look for another? Have you ever been second guessed? Whether from your boss who keeps wondering and poking his head into your office, wondering if you're ever going to be able to finish that project on time, or your roommate or spouse who hears the garbage truck early in the morning and frantically runs in and says, did you remember to put out the trash? In those moments, we're never peacefully calling them to acknowledge our past performance, but we respond vindictively. We want them to not question us. We want them to know that we are who we said we were, that we are creatures of our word. And put yourself in Jesus' shoes here in this text. Jesus knew that John had been especially filled with the Holy Spirit for the distinct role of proclaiming and preparing the way for Jesus. Jesus knew that when Elizabeth, pregnant with John, met Mary, pregnant with Jesus, that John in utero leapt in his mother's womb to experience the incarnation even through the wall of two pregnant bellies. We know that when Jesus was baptized by John, that John heard audibly the voice of God open up and the Holy Spirit descend looking like a dove and to hear the word say, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus knew all of the proofs that John had in this moment. And if we were Jesus and John suddenly began to question who we were, wouldn't we be prone to take it personally? Wouldn't we want to vindicate ourselves? Perhaps even making an example of John so that people would get the idea, don't question me like this fool is. Don't be so weak like this guy. Be better than he is. But what does Jesus do? He takes time to defend John the Baptist. Jesus doesn't need to do this. Jesus could have left this discussion, given John's disciples an answer, and returned back to the masses doing his own thing. But Jesus, our Savior King, the one who is a friend of sinners, cannot help and in fact lives to defend those who are his. Consider the character of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 22 through 25. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, in other words, on behalf of this, because of this, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives. Why does Jesus live today? Why is he ascended to the right hand of the throne of God, the Father Almighty? Not only because he is Jesus and death couldn't hold him, but because he lives to make intercession for them. He lives to speak on behalf of his beloved. Not only do we receive the work of Jesus, which saves us, but we receive the relationship of Jesus, who then himself, not through any mediary, seeks to serve us. 
to care for us. Salvation is where we get all of God, all of his work, all of his word, and all of his person poured out and covenanted to us for our own benefit. And here's the application of this text. It is not uncommon, though unfortunate, that we sin. It is not uncommon, though unfortunate, like John, to doubt God's goodness in the moment. It is not uncommon, though unfortunate, for you to feel the brokenness of the world, the longing, the groaning, the straining of walking by faith and not by sight. But in seeing here the character of Jesus, we should find it extremely common to go to Jesus with our sin, to go to Jesus with our doubt, to go to Jesus with our brokenness and our lament. If John's doubt stayed in the prison cell, he might have looked holier, but it would have been a different story. But John brought his doubt to Jesus and Jesus did not mock him. Jesus did not shame him. Jesus was firm as any good king is firm, but Jesus is also our brother who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and care for us. Do you see the privilege of the gospel in having not only the work of Christ, but the character of Christ turned towards you? To get the grace of Jesus is also to get the goodness of Jesus. To get the legal declaration of Jesus' righteousness is to also get the relational love of Jesus himself. And Jesus defends John by saying this. What did you go to see? A reed shaking in the wind? Did you go to see John because he was this limp-wristed guy always flailing by the changing winds of culture? No, we saw John's message. He was fearless. He was resolute. And he says, did you go see John because he was royalty? No, he was in the wilderness dressed like a crazy person. The royal people were in the throne rooms. They were in high places and palaces. And then Jesus says the answer that was obviously true. What did you go to see? A prophet. Yes, a prophet. You see, the joy of redemption is that the world might think one thing of you. And in the gospel, Jesus not only says something of you, he not only declares you innocent, but he continues to say that. He continues to remind you of that to a world which is often critical. He continues to remind you of what he's done to save you, even when your own heart condemns you. He calls you, he defends those who are robed in his righteousness with the same zeal he has for his own righteousness. You see, Jesus defends the believer because when Jesus defends you, though weak with sin, though living in a broken world, though straining by the power of the Holy Spirit for progress in the faith, he defends you as he defends the own merit and measure of his own work. Why? Because all we have is his work. All we are is given to us by Jesus. And this is why he lives to make defense of those who come to him. Now, we are all saved by grace, but not all of us. In fact, none of you are John the Baptist. And Jesus makes this distinction here. And this is where we see the second privilege of the gospel. And this is the content of good news. Focusing on the message of John the Baptist. Look back with me at verses 26 through 28. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messengers before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater 
than he. So there are three things Jesus affirms here in terms of the content of John's message. And the first is that he affirms the unique role of John and therefore the prophetic message of God. He says, John is the messenger. John is the one building on the promise that I gave back on page three of scripture to redeem a broken creation. This was the true and living Adam. This was God coming to dwell with us. This is the promise plan all along. And John was the messenger of it. And he makes this point from quoting from the prophet Malachi, where he says this, behold, I send my messenger. This is Malachi three, verse one. Before I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold the Lord. He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And so not only does Jesus affirm that John the Baptist's message was the continued promise of God, but Jesus does something unique. He actually tweaks this prophecy a little bit and reveals a new sense of it. What Malachi says is that God's prophet will prepare the way for God. That's what he says. He will prepare his own way. But Jesus says that God's prophet will prepare the way for you in a general sense. And see, not only is the content of good news the long-awaited promise of God, but the message of the gospel is the prepared way of God. It is about him. And yet it is also prepared for you. It is also about you. God's story is a re-invitation into your own story. Sin has knocked us off of our path. Sin has buried us in a grave. We cannot have a wrong view of God and a right view of self. Sin has messed up our view of God and inevitably we will view ourselves, view our world and view our destination through the wrong lens. But here, the message of the gospel that is being proclaimed before your face, this right view of God is the path of individual purpose and redemption. That is not only that John's message is God's promise, but it is God's promise for you. Now anyone can make promises, but not all the promises are good. There is a promise. If you go over the speed limit, you'll be ticketed. That's a promise. It's not necessarily one we enjoy or go home and celebrate. But thirdly, we see something astonishing about the promise that Jesus gives us. And that is that this good promise is for you and it is for your joy. He says that anyone who walks in the kingdom of God, even the least, will be greater than John. The power of John's message supercharges the life of those who believe it. The content of the gospel message is God's long promised plan for redemption, which is for your own surpassing joy and your own surpassing greatness. Why do Christians believe the message of the gospel? Not simply because it was promised and it was true and it has to do with you, but because it is surpassingly joyful for you. Because it is the greatest news you could ever have. He says, those who are least in the kingdom of God will be greater than even John the Baptist. Now, what does he mean when he says that? Because John, though the special, unique, final prophet, he was also just the one who pointed towards the door. He was the herald to the kingdom. But the ones who got to enter the kingdom, the ones who get to go through the door are greater. They have a new experience. And Jesus here is affirming what John probably knew to be true at this point, that John was not going to be out of prison and see the completed work of Christ on the cross. That John was going to die on the other side of promises fulfilled. But this means that we who sit here today, that those who Jesus are talking about, we have 
access into something greater. Amidst the chaos, division, dissension of our world, we sit on this side of the cross, have a privilege unparalleled. The newest Christian in this room, you actually have, if you came to faith yesterday, if you came to faith this morning in the gospel, we sung together, you have a clearer picture of Jesus than even John the Baptist did. You have something greater. You can't drive around Missoula, even in our post-Christian world, and not see a bumper sticker or a church sign or a decoration of a cross. Do you realize the wonder of knowing what that cross stands for? Of living not in the hope of promises, but in the fulfillment of promises. You see, John the Baptist was commissioned and specially indwelt with, for that commission by the power of the Holy Spirit. Those who come to, to faith in Jesus right now are also filled with the Holy Spirit for a commission, a great commission that Jesus gives to go out and make disciples. But do you realize that we are not only commissioned and filled with the Holy Spirit, but we are given the Holy Spirit simply for the sake of communing with God. God simply wants to be with his church while he also empowers his church. We have a greater experience of the intimacy of God than even John the Baptist himself. But this privilege is not innate. Jesus makes it clear this privilege is for those who walk in the kingdom. So what does that mean? How do we walk this kingdom path? Well, Jesus shows us next by teaching us. We've seen the beautiful privileges of the gospel, but now what does it look like to walk in the purpose of the gospel? What does it look like to wrap our lives around this good news? Read with me Luke 27, 29 through 35. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then, so Jesus resumes here in verse 31, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another. We played the fruit, flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating, eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say he has a demon. Son of man has come eating and drinking and you say, look at him glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. In a world which, just like today, is longing for purpose and satisfaction, Luke highlights for us those who found exactly what they were looking for. Amidst the power brokers and influencers of the day, we find a group of no-name people Generic crowds and ill-thought-of people like tax collectors who ended up being the ones who declared God just. Now, if you're a Christian, and maybe if you're not, that's an odd phrase. What does it mean to declare God just? Well, we read of God declaring us just. In fact, that is the hope of our salvation. Not that we could do anything, but that God, through faith in Jesus Christ, would declare us just. In fact, the word here is just the verbal form of the word also translated in the New Testament as just righteousness being made righteous, being declared just, having a verdict given on your behalf. It's the same word Paul uses in Romans 8.33 where he says, it is God who justifies. So obviously when we read this, we're encountering a distinction. We don't need to justify God. We are not judges 
who then take all of God's word and we assess if God has met the demands to be a God or not. We are not over him declaring him right. So what does it mean then when these people of no name and ill repute declare God just? Well, 1984, the blooming superstar Michael Jordan was shopping for a shoe deal. And at that point, there is a big name in the basketball shoe world, and that was Converse. If you wanted to be anybody, you wore Converse shoes. It's what uh, Magic Johnson wore. It's what Larry Bird wore. And then there was actually a smaller brand, though new on the scene, that had Michael Jordan's own attention. That was the brand of Adidas. It's kind of this cool, trendy upstart. But at the end of the day, Michael Jordan signed with a little-known shoe brand who at that point only made specialty track and wrestling shoes. And that shoe brand was Nike. And this was the first of their major signature signings. But, and what that meant is that Michael Jordan justified Nike. He vindicated them. It proved to the world that Nike had something of value because Michael Jordan just signed with them. He said no to all these other things, but Michael Jordan sees something in Nike. But this is the wonderful inversion of the gospel. In one sense, we understand what it means to be declared just in this story, but the story of the gospel switches things over. You see, where a superstar Michael Jordan brought justification to a no-name outlier like Nike, in this passage with the gospel, It is the no-name outliers of the crowd and tax collectors who justify the superstar promise of God. This is the scandal of the gospel. Because in the midst of this story, we have superstars. There are Pharisees. There are legal experts in this realm. There are the ones whose job is to discern the way of the Lord. That's what they are paid to do. That's what they are respected as, recognizing the way, the talent, the value of all of God's revelation. But they are not the ones who proved true the reality of God's path. They are not the ones who declared that this is just and right. It was the no-names who became great by aligning themselves with the path of God's truth. You see, our world needs to hear this today more than ever because we misplace power so easily. It is not in the power of the masses. It is not in however many people come into this room that make the gospel true. But it is the truth of the gospel which converts the masses It is because the gospel is the right and true way that any of us are called to worship God truly. And we see that because how did these no-name outsiders become great? They didn't receive massive wealth and income. They didn't shirk the Roman system of influence and power, but instead they followed John's way. They followed John's baptism, which was, as we saw earlier in the book of Luke, a baptism of repentance. You see, the gospel was still yet to come, even when Jesus was talking about this. He still had the cross before him, and the gospel is not fully proclaimed, not fully seen until that event and his subsequent resurrection. But at this point, these people understood that John's message of repentance was the way into the kingdom of God, and they readily observed that message. They heard the message of sin, and they realized that sin best made sense of their reality. I don't know for many of us, if that's true, maybe it's just me, but nothing makes sense of my reality more than understanding the doctrine of sin. (laughs) Everything seems to fall in its place when I realize that. They heard that message and they're like, seems right, (laughs) seems true. 
And if that's true, and if what this man is saying about God is true, then my only hope is to repent. My only hope is to humble myself, to accept the baptism of another, and to walk in a new way of life. But the repentance of these no-name, ill-repute people is contrasted by the obstinate hardness of heart of the superstars of the day. The legal experts and the Pharisees, they heard the message of sin, they heard the call for repentance, and they refused to acknowledge what was really true. But did you notice the subtlety of what Luke says? Luke 7, verse 30. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Did you notice what Luke said here? He didn't say they themselves rejected the purpose of God. Instead, what he said was they rejected the purpose of God for themselves. In other words, they refused to acknowledge the reality about God, which in turn was refusing to acknowledge a reality about themselves. They refused to see God's purpose, not realizing that their greatest purpose is in God's plan. Their greatest hope is in the God who spoke. If the gospel of Jesus is true, then when we encounter a message of sin and salvation through Jesus, we do not simply reject God's purpose. We reject God's purpose for ourselves. We reject the possibility of having the safety, the security, the satisfaction we want. We leave on the table the true path to greatness and personal meaning. We were made for a purpose. Paul says this in Ephesians 2. Verse 10, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. To put it another way, Isaiah 43, verses 6 through 7, God is saying of the people he will call to himself, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. You see, the message of the gospel is not a mere message of intellectual assent, but it's a message of personal fulfillment and meaningful purpose, where your works, your joy, your purpose is found in that overarching goal of the glory of God, who were created, says the prophet Isaiah, for the glory of God that God knew you, he created you so that you might live for him. That's what it means to have your purpose changed. You see, I can accept the truth of quantum physics, but it doesn't change my purpose. But to realize the value and truth of the gospel changes everything. To respond to the kingdom by the great way of repentance is to realize the problem is not what we know, it's who we are. We are sinful. Our purposes, our goals, our desire, our ends are all broken. We are the blind leading the blind. And if that's true, we need more than just a punched hall pass. We need a new way of living. But the path prepared beforehand, the path declared before the faces of those who heard John, the path shown for us who have seen the completed work of Jesus Christ shows us that the way forward is the way backwards. 
It comes back by means of repentance and then begins to find true meaningful purpose by living now by the standards of greatness defined by Jesus and not by ourselves. And we always wrestle with these expectations. There's this innate tendency in our hearts. We love grace, don't we? But don't our actions often show we hate it? (laughs) Because no one wants to be in a position where you need grace. No one wants to acknowledge, I've messed up. I'm the problem. Would you help me? It's great to sing about. It's dangerous to believe. And the only way we can respond to grace, the only way we can get grace is by realizing that we need something. We need to humble ourselves or else our expectations of greatness and our quest for personal satisfaction will always be broken. And Jesus illuminates the trial of this in this little parable he gives, Luke seven thirty one through 35. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the fruit, flute for you. I keep saying fruit. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So I have four kids, nine through two. And I don't know if you have the same experience of walking into a room where a group of kids are trying to agree upon the ground rules for a specific game. It's humorous, it's frustrating, it's cute, and it's also anger-provoking to see all of this stuff happen. Because on one hand, there could be this authoritarian child who is demanding that the game play one specific way, while the rest of the people are totally content playing this other game. Or perhaps... There's just this one pretentious child who doesn't want to play the game. And regardless of how the majority tries to cater to their whim or liking, they can't ever please them. They want to play one game. They want to play Duck, Duck, Goose. And so you say, we'll play Duck, 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 Goose. And they're automatically like, no, I want to play hide and seek. So you say, we'll play hide and seek. And they say, I just want to play sit on a couch and be mad at you. And we're like, okay, I can relate to that. And, and so we see this happening here. And this is what Jesus is illustrating. He's illustrating how fickle our hearts are at finding joy in the world. We are always and only frustrated in this same venture as Jesus' own generation was. And Jesus illustrates this by showing the discontent with Jesus and with John the Baptist. He said, John came abstaining from the world. And the Pharisees are like, that guy's broken. He's a demon. Jesus came engaging with the world. And those same people were like, look at the drunkard. Look at that fool. You see, to listen to the voice of the world or the fickle reasoning of your own heart is to play a zero-sum game. It is to commit yourself to a losing battle. It never satisfies We want greatness, we want purpose, but we never find relief. To play by the standards of the world, to enter the marketplace of the world, is to either become the pretentious child who refuses to play the rules of the game, or to quickly become the defeated child, because just when you feel like you've done what it takes to win, the rules change. There's a new game, another level, a new requirement. And we see this sort of confusion and exhaustion even in the church. What does it mean to be great? What What does it mean to be a good Christian? 
Well, perhaps you take wonderful biblical truths that apart from holiness, no one will see the Lord. And you commit yourself to coming to church, to reading the Bible. Maybe even you say, I am a slave to my own passions. And so I'm going to stop eating fast food. I'm going to stop drinking entirely. And I'm going to pursue holiness with the whole of my life. And what's a critique you'd expect someone to say to you? Look at that legalist. Live a little, man. And then you take these other truths where Jesus calls us in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians to actually be involved. He says, have nothing to do with the Christian who is actively unrepentantly in sin, but don't remove yourself from the world around you, which is sinful because they need the gospel. And you say, all right, I'm gonna go to my neighbor's house. My neighbors across the way are, are in a same-sex relationship and they're having a birthday party. I'm gonna go to that and I'm gonna build a relationship upon which I could preach the gospel. I'm going to understand the ethos of the day so that I can understand where people are looking for gospels, which are false, which only the gospel can provide. And what do people say? You're so worldly. Do you even care about righteousness? We cannot win except by playing according to the rules of the gospel. Is there a way forward? Have you ever felt that way? Is there a way forward? There is. And Jesus prepares that way for us right here. There's a song my kids listen to often. I sang it with them yesterday. It's called Bear Hunt. Maybe if you're a kid in here, you know it. They encounter all these obstacles. There's rivers, there's mud, there's grass. And the chorus goes, we can't go over it. We can't go under it. So what? We've got to go through it. When we play by the rules, worlds for greatness, we find losses and hurdles at every juncture. But the gospel message proclaimed by John, fulfilled by Jesus and treasured by the church, points to the way prepared for us. And we try so hard to find any way except for this one. We try to circumvent it. We try to avoid it. We try to run around it. We look for every opportunity for success and satisfaction by our own measures, but we can't go over it. We can't go under it. We must go through it. And what is that way? Repentance and obedience to Jesus. This is the path of greatness. We need to stop listening to the message of the children of the world and start being children of the message of wisdom. There are two groups of kids here, confused and frustrated children playing in the marketplace, but then there's the children of Luke 7, 35. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. The children who respond rightly those who, like the tax collectors and the crowds, declared God just are those who respond to the message of God with the call to repent, to believe, and to give your lives for the glory of the one who called you. Martin Luther opened his 95 thesis by saying this, number one, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed that the entire life of a believer be one of repentance. Do you want purpose? Do you want joy? Do you want surpassing greatness? 
repent and walk in the way of the gospel. It looks different. It looks frustrating to the way of the world, but it is right. It is just, and it is real. It is the certainty of God's long promised promise, which was for you and for your surpassing joy. Every era of the church, perhaps, again, looking at social media this week, you've seen that the church is in sort of a PR crisis right now. Every area of the church has had to deal with this. And we can go and we can anxiously pine if we have the right voices in the Supreme Court, if we have the right voices in the Senate, if we have the right social media influencers, if we lived in the right country, if we have the right income, then we could show the world that God's way is the right way. But do you see the profound apologetic God has woven into this text for you? That if we want the world to see the wisdom, the wonder, the salvation of the Lord, What ought we to do? Walk in the path of repentance. Embrace the way of the kingdom of God. The path has been declared before our faces. And it includes dark days and isolated tombs. But it gives way to glory and newness of life. It is what vindicates, not God, for he needs no vindication. It is what vindicates us. And to vindicate us to a watching world says that this can be for you as well. You see, walking this way doesn't look glamorous. It might even look foolish. It might look scandalous. It might feel lowly, but this is the real way. This is the way to greatness. Greatness in a kingdom that lasts. You see, as we seek to put on the path of repentance, we see in this text that already the legal experts and the Pharisees, the power brokers of the day, look down upon the tax collectors and the crowds. And this is the joy of the gospel, that the very critique the children of the world lobby at God's children is that through which we ourselves draw deep comfort. Look at that Jesus, a friend of sinners. All he is, is a crutch for the weak, an opiate for the masses, a cop out for those who can't get the sex, the money, and the power on their own. But to those who declare God just, we see the phrase through which the world wishes to deride our savior and we devote ourselves to him. Here is Jesus, my friend. The friend of tax collectors, sinners, sufferers, doubters, and the like. And this is the great news of Jesus, who wins us by faith to a path that leads us to glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have prepared a way before us We ask that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, make us not only hearers of the word, but doers of it. Lord, we pray that our lives, lowly, often despised and ridiculed, might be a portrait into the justification of God. That your way, the way of obedience, the way of repentance, is the way of greatness. We thank you that you have not only illustrated it in Jesus Christ, but more than that, you have made it possible through Jesus Christ. By setting aside our record of wrong, 
nailing it to the cross. You've made us alive together with Jesus. Lord, help us to see the privilege of the gospel and to wrap our lives around the purpose of it. We pray this in your name. Amen.